Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 20. Trauma. The Wounded Soul. Part 2. Post-Traumatic Disorders. In the first part of our series on trauma, we looked at what trauma is and what consequences early childhood traumatization can have. In this episode, we want to look at what is frequently understood by trauma in the more narrow clinical sense, namely so-called acute stress disorder, as well as post-traumatic stress disorder. These disorders are characterised by symptoms that were first systematically observed by modern psychiatry over the course of the world wars. Sigmund Freud also treated so-called war neuroses during the First World War. That is, mental illnesses in young soldiers who set out for the war more or less psychologically healthy but returned from it disturbed and with severe psychic symptoms. What is remarkable is that the most common reactions to trauma have changed over the years. In the First World War, the consequences of trauma primarily manifested themselves on a physical level, especially in distinctive movement disorders, war tremors, or so-called shell shock. The young soldiers, mostly after a disturbing experience, such as the impact of a grenade in the trenches, trembled permanently and uncontrollably. Although they may not have suffered any physical damage at all, it is sufficient, and this still applies to today's trauma disorders, to be a direct witness to a terrible event. These young men could no longer stand on their own two feet, nor hold objects in their hands, and their personalities had also changed. They became mistrustful and fearful, and they were frightened and panic-stricken, even in relation to mundane, everyday events. Doctors such as Freud, who suspected a psychological cause behind these symptoms, and looked for it in the overwhelming horror of the war experiences, were in the minority. In most cases, a purely physical or mechanical cause was presumed, such as changes to the brain due to the compression waves of grenade blasts, if, that is, the traumatised soldiers were not simply taken to be war dodgers, trying to avoid wartime deployment. These diseases were often handled in a brutal way, for example, with painful electric shocks, which were supposed to blindside the nervous symptoms. One also speaks of blindside therapies, in order to produce a countershock, so to speak, to neutralise the original shock. At the time, people spoke of the overwhelming cure rates of these fast and efficient therapy measures. That's how old these claims are. In fact, even when they managed to suppress the tremor symptoms and reduce acute stress, 
The young soldiers' psyches remained deeply wounded, and often they were hardly capable of leading a normal life. The sad truth is that in Germany, many thousands of traumatized and mentally ill soldiers were murdered in the so-called euthanasia campaigns of the National Socialists. But people from other countries traumatized by war were often victims of social decline as well, lived impoverished, on the fringes of society, and without adequate treatment or even understanding of the illness. Already, during the Second World War, however, the reactions to trauma had changed, and this tendency could also be observed in the effects of later wars. The symptoms exhibited by the traumatised were predominantly psychological rather than physical, which, perhaps, has to do with the fact that the relationship people had with themselves had become increasingly psychologised, less physical. But it certainly also had to do with the fact that how the physicians discussed, conceptualised and documented the cases themselves had only just opened the door to the psychological significance of symptoms in general. The American soldiers returning from the Vietnam War ultimately exhibited a pattern of psychological symptoms and suffering so typical that a separate term was created for it, post-traumatic stress disorder. This remains one of the most common trauma sequelae which not only develop in the course of wartime events, but also in connection with devastating events in life, such as serious traffic accidents, violent experiences like abduction, terrorist attacks, torture, sexual violence, or in connection with natural disasters. Now, how does post-traumatic disorder manifest itself? A distinction is made between an acute and a chronic reaction to trauma. It is known from accident victims, say in the case of a serious traffic accident on the highway, that they sometimes display strange behaviour immediately after the accident, even if they were not injured physically, or only marginally. They end up in a state of shock-induced paralysis, are incapable of communicating, stare off into space. Both pupils are characteristically directed straight ahead. One also speaks of the so-called thousand-yard stare. Or they are subject to incoherent affects, exhibit intense excitement, fear, perplexed anger or aggression. Moreover, phenomena like depersonalization and dissociation are also very common. They seem to step out of themselves, appear to others, such as first responders, inwardly absent, unconnected to place and time. It is a kind of out-of-body experience, as if the events were not of any concern to them at all. Acute dissociative states may also occur in which the victim of the accident loses their bearings entirely. 
the person does not know where or who they are. In some cases, the victim wanders off after the incident, for example on foot, through a forest, or to a nearby town. The technical term for such phenomena is dissociative fugue, or dissociative escape, whereby this condition can also manifest itself at some later time after the burdensome trigger. The person suddenly disappears from their everyday life, undertakes a long journey, possibly then assuming a different identity without remembering their true identity. Although their behaviour is otherwise entirely applicable and inconspicuous. In extreme cases, this state can last for several hours or days until the person comes to finds themselves in some other place, far away from the scene of the accident, or home. Torture victims also report that they dissociate during torture, that they had the feeling of not being in their own bodies, or being completely absent from the situation. Often, such states are liable to amnesia. The victims cannot remember them later, and become frightened when others give them an account. It is a psychological emergency response that tries, in an archaic way, to protect the ego from the acute threat of the traumatic situation. The events, such as a bad accident, are so frightening and shocking that they overwhelm the capacities of the mind. The trauma strikes at the structure of the psyche. It is something that is incomprehensible, that even lies beyond fear and horror. A nameless terror to which the psyche can find no answer. The ego of the conflicted person seeks escape and saves itself from the cataclysmic impressions by severing the connection between perception and consciousness. One also speaks of the defence mechanism of splitting or a partial splitting of consciousness. In a state of acute traumatisation, the psyche behaves like in a devastating forest fire that can no longer be controlled. The area ablaze is abandoned and relinquished to the flames, while attempts are made to cordon off a safe area from the rest of the fields by ripping away all possible points of connection, all combustible materials. A survival strategy in which a part of oneself is sacrificed. In the psyche of an acutely traumatised person, there is now one area where the ego has been able to save itself from the flames, and another where the blaze burns on. The structure of the ego its essential functions of reality testing, affect control and so on, are for the moment destroyed by the trauma, and it now very much depends on how quickly and successfully the reconstruction can proceed. After the acute shock has subsided, usually after a few hours or days, the psyche enters a different state. It begins to process and cope with what happened, 
Oftentimes, it is only then that the afflicted person experiences the corresponding emotional impulses. Massive sadness, anger, despair, feelings of guilt, etc. At the same time, the ego tries to return to a functional and tolerable state, applying all kinds of defence mechanisms, such as denying what happened. The traumatic occurrence itself is typically repeated over and over again in thoughts, fantasies or dreams, even to the point of hallucinatory experiences. The sudden feeling of being in the middle of the traumatic situation again. The decisive factor at this stage is whether the person affected can succeed at integrating what has happened into his or her experience. To transform it inwardly, to discuss it, to think it through, to relate oneself to others, for example by participating in groups for victims, perhaps to gain for oneself some kind of meaning or inner coherence in relation to the incident. Or, should the occasion arise, to talk to a therapist. In this way, it can, with sufficient social support and psychological stability, be possible to digest what has been experienced, to do away with the splitting, to extinguish the inner fire, and to gradually regain the partitioned area for oneself. Often enough, in the case of serious losses, for example, a process of mourning and inner resolution is required. If all this succeeds, the trauma can be overcome without it resulting in a lasting and serious mental illness, even though scars will certainly remain. Unfortunately, it is indeed often the case that this form of accompanied self-recovery is not possible the traumatic event remains unresolved. Some people succeed in permanently separating what they have experienced from their consciousness, encapsulating the trauma and never touching it again. The trauma then remains present in the self as a ghost, as a sealed-off room which under no circumstances may be entered. With all the psychological contortions and avoidance strategies that are therefore necessary. For example, by keeping away from deeper emotional contact in general, not allowing oneself to be moved by anything, and keeping silent about everything having to do with the trauma. These people may be able to maintain a more or less fragile equilibrium but the trauma continues to haunt them. The invisible ghost even encounters the generations that follow. For instance, those children who cannot comprehend their parents' emotional absence. They usually develop a sense for the presence of something inexplicable in their family history and, in this way, subsequently become victims of that trauma but we will hear about such transgenerational processes in the next episode. For other people, such solutions, constant avoidance and splitting, aren't successful. 
or only in such a fragile way that they no longer find a psychological balance. This class of symptoms is, in a narrower sense, called post-traumatic stress disorder. The trauma remains ever-present, imposes itself on the afflicted person in nightmares and hallucinatory waking dreams, in flashbacks. These people can no longer find peace, are permanently skittish, sleepless, easily irritable to the point of aggressive outbursts, then, once again, emotionally numb, dulled, indifferent towards themselves and others. What is also characteristic is a lasting feeling of guilt in connection with the trauma, even if they were clearly the victim. This leads to increasing social withdrawal, often in conjunction with the use of alcohol, drugs, medication, or the excessive consumption of media as a means of self-reassurance, along with the corresponding subsequent problems. If this state lasts for years, the personality traits of that person begin to change. A post-traumatic personality emerges, in which the pathology becomes chronically solidified and mistrust, vulnerability, emotional numbness, and guilt migrate into the identity of the person. If, on the other hand, the traumatization continues, for example, through ongoing sexual violence from which no separation is possible, that resemble those of a borderline disorder. The acute symptoms of a post-traumatic stress disorder, the dissociative symptoms and flashbacks, are basically signs that the traumatic experience cannot be integrated, nor split off or repressed. The fire in the psychological house continues unabated. Like all unresolved psychological occurrences, this we heard about in a previous episode. They know no time and cannot pass over into the past. A small, often unnoticed allusion to the trauma, so-called triggers, which have some sort of connection to the trauma, such as the smell of smoke, the popping of fireworks, or a scene in a TV movie, and immediately the trauma becomes psychological reality again, along with severe, panic-fueled fears. The ego only knows how to rescue itself through a renewed split in consciousness. It dissociates, whereby the dissociation itself is an unconscious attempt to salvage the psyche. This, mind you, is also a stumbling block for any healing contact or any examination of the trauma, say therapy. This is why overcoming the trauma sometimes requires certain steps, so as to override the dissociation. Work on the couch is usually not advisable here, since the contact with the inner world that is thereby fostered is far too overwhelming. Psychoanalytically, one often works in a so-called modified setting. For pronounced trauma sequelae, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, 
There are special therapy techniques that should be carried out by therapists with advanced training. In the case of severe symptoms, inpatient treatment may initially be necessary. For instance, the so-called EMDR method is well known, meaning trauma sensitization through eye movements. After a preparatory and stabilizing phase of the therapy, the patient puts themselves back into the situation of the trauma by telling the therapist about it. The therapist moves a hand or finger back and forth in front of the patient's eyes, upon which the patient is supposed to concentrate while telling their story. By focusing, their attention is kept in the here and now, and the dissociation is averted. Patient and therapist encounter the trauma together, extricating it from the splitting defence and making it available for processing. Yet, this can only succeed if a stable therapeutic relationship has been established. The patient feels secure and protected, and has the feeling that he or she can control the dosage of the confrontation themselves. Imaginative techniques often play a role in trauma therapy. For example, in psychodynamic imaginative trauma therapy, following the work of Louisa Riedemann, or the so-called screen technique, here, the aim is to create inner images that can aid in approaching the trauma more gently. For example, by imagining an inner safe place or inner helper, which can be used to save oneself in the event of catastrophic feelings. The confrontation with the trauma does not take place directly through retelling, but rather in an imaginative framework. The patient is, for example, supposed to imagine the events as if they were unfolding on a screen, while at the same time they have a remote control in their hand and can press the stop button if necessary. Imaginative techniques are thus primarily oriented on the mechanisms of dream formation. This is similar to how dreams often incorporate devastating events and terror, not infrequently real traumatic fragments, for example, in that there is a feeling in the dream that what is happening is not real at all, but only a film. For a psychodynamic understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder, it is important to keep in mind the impact of trauma on the inner mental structure and the world of inner objects, i.e. the mental representations of oneself and others. While early childhood trauma will impede the construction of a stable psychic structure, trauma later on will strike at this very structure in a destructive manner. The trauma, especially when the violence is deliberately inflicted by others, is an assault on the foundation of the psychic structure. That sense of security, that basic trust in the world and other people that a child acquires when the attachment relationship with its parents develops well.
It is as if this promise of security were subsequently revoked. The suchers of the soul that until this point had been secured are violently torn. Into the inner world of helpful figures enters a monster, the trauma, unfathomable, incomprehensible, which destroys the inner coherence. One also speaks of a so-called trauma introjection, i.e., a kind of intruder that is absorbed into the psychic structure like a bullet that the body cannot expel and remains stuck within. There, it will do its sinister work if the body's defences do not succeed in encapsulating it. This aspect is extraordinarily important for understanding the consequences of trauma. The traumatised person becomes a piece of trauma. The trauma penetrates and takes hold. In the case of traumatizations by other people, this means that the perpetrator penetrates the victim's psychic structure and takes root there, which, incidentally, is precisely what torturers are aiming to do. It is known from the identification with the aggressor phenomenon, or the so-called Stockholm Syndrome, that victims of prolonged violence, such as hostage situations, adopt the motives and feelings of the perpetrators, and feel guilty and responsible towards them. Still, even once the hostage situation has ended, and the actual threat has passed, one also speaks of paradoxical guilt, that is, a feeling of guilt that the victim of a crime feels, not only in relation to their own survival, so-called survivor's guilt, but rather a feeling of guilt for the crime, just as if they were the perpetrator themselves. On a psychological level, this corresponds to a truly fatal inner psychological dynamic. Out of existential powerlessness and helplessness can arise an unconscious identification with the perpetrator and their motives. That is because their power also promises the only protection, the only thing, and this is in big quotation marks, good and helpful in the traumatic situation. An identification with the perpetrator that can outlast the traumatic situation itself. Within the victim's psyche, an inner perpetrator seizes command terrorises the other defenceless parts of the self. Sometimes, something of enormous destructiveness takes over in one's own mind. The afflicted person begins to torment themselves, to the point of pronounced self-hatred, which can even lead to suicidal behaviour. In the case of some dire developments, especially in the case of early traumatisation, this can eventually lead to a victim actually becoming a perpetrator themselves, for example, in relation to their own children. This identification with the perpetrator of one's own suffering, such as one's own parent, often takes place like a sudden psychic short circuit, which is then registered with terrifying shock. Unfortunately, however, 
it is also quickly pushed away and denied. It is important to emphasise, however, that in every victim of trauma, there is a desire for vitality and healing, which doesn't just go away. Consciously and unconsciously, the injured psyche tries to understand what has happened, to mitigate the destructiveness, and to reintegrate it into one's own identity. Of essential importance to these coping attempts is an inclination that initially appears completely preposterous, the repetition of the trauma. It is already known from children that the content of their games often concerns those experiences in particular that are difficult to cope with. Anyone who has seen drawings from refugee children or victims of sexual violence or who have watched them play with dolls, will be familiar with this phenomenon. The child's psyche is attempting to make what happened comprehensible by continually repeating it, reenacting it, recreating it in a manageable framework and with new roles. In this way, and if necessary, with the accompaniment of a child therapist, the child gradually comes to terms with the experience. The psyche of an adult proceeds no differently. Here, too, there is sometimes an almost demonic attraction to the trauma. This may be in dreams and thoughts that cannot let go of the subject, but also in real actions. A piece of psychoanalytic and probably also political wisdom, is that everything that has not been understood must be repeated. Within the scope of traumatisation, however, this can have fatal consequences. Returning to the traumatic situation, such as dangerous traffic situations, relationships or the like, usually serves the unconscious attempt to understand what has happened to bring it back under the control of the ego through an act of repetitive, similar to when children play. Unfortunately, this comes along with the danger that the actual event will be repeated, that the attempt to understand will lead to a catastrophic repetition, a re-traumatisation, which regrettably is also a typical phenomenon of trauma disorders. All the more important are forms of confrontation that make it possible to handle the trauma in a symbolic way. Days set aside for celebrating or mourning consist in just this kind of performative repetition of collective trauma, albeit under guarded and safe conditions. Ultimately, specialised trauma therapies are similarly based on a renewed encounter with the trauma, through narrative or the imagination. But this time within a framework and therapeutic relationship that is safe and offers protection. In a sense, this is a revisal of the powerlessness and helplessness in the original traumatic situation. As with other psychological occurrences, therapeutic work with trauma ultimately consists in facilitating a process of mourning, 
for mourning successfully means nothing other than psychologically digesting something incomprehensible, acknowledging what happened as part of one's own history, and thereby releasing it from the spectre of unconscious repetition. However, besides therapy, there are also other important spaces for working through grief. Literature, art, music, or any form of emotional expression. These especially touch us when an issue still unresolved within us is given form. And perhaps a part of every book, every song, every painting, ultimately contains inscribed within the overcoming of trauma and the work of mourning. This podcast was written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. It has been translated by Suleiman Lawrence and is read by Rebecca Dyson-Smith.